This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. America's schools belong to parents and local communities, not smug bureaucrats or arrogant administrators. Around the nation, people of all political persuasions are preparing for the midterm elections. The media focus on the House of Representatives, Senate, and state governors. However, some of the most important elections are those choosing the members of America's school boards. Typically, school board elections are seen as routine and unimportant. However, over the past months, many leaders and would-be leaders see them as places where America's future will be hammered out. One such election took place in Miami, Florida. Mr. Edwin Benson, who began his teaching career there, examines the outcome of this contentious battle in his essay, Parents Win Fierce Battle Against Radical Ideas in Miami School Board Elections. If the recent school board elections in Miami-Dade County, Florida, indicate a national trend, woke educators are in deep trouble. Their decades-long control of America's public school bureaucracy is threatened. They are not yet defeated. It will take years to untangle the mess leftists have made of American education, public, private, and Catholic. However, two conservatives, endorsed by Florida's Republican governor, defeated more liberal candidates within a bastion district of progressive education. When I became an employee of that system, their most common catchphrase was, on the forefront of educational reform. The fact that anyone is paying attention to school board elections is a sure sign that education issues are a priority among voters. Until recently, these elections have been minor events. Unless a major scandal loomed, incumbents usually won them automatically, often without opposition. Thus, in Miami-Dade County, the fourth largest school system in the country, school board members with tenures of over 20 years have been ordinary. Parents often complained about the school system's indifference to their concerns, but few were willing to do the work that could change the situation. The system's cumbersome bureaucracy sheltered employees at all levels who were ineffective, and cronyism was rampant. Two separate but related controversies have changed that picture drastically, gender ideology and critical race theory. While public consciousness of those trends is relatively new, both represent movements that school leaders promoted for decades. I encountered both movements, albeit under different names, during the 15 years, 1984 to 1999, that I taught history and government in the Miami-Dade public schools. My career began when AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, became a public concern. The central office assigned American history teachers to teach lessons about AIDS. Each teacher received a massive binder of materials on the topic. Nowhere in those hundreds of loose-leaf pages did it say what everyone already knew, that AIDS was limited mainly to promiscuous individuals, especially homosexuals. Their so-called advocates met anyone who mentioned that inconvenient fact with a barrage of criticism about blaming the victims. The attempt to inculcate critical race theory began in the early 90s under the title Multiculturalism. 
The radicals shouted their contentions that morals and laws were purely human inventions. The vital idea was that all cultures were equal. In a process called imperialism, Western cultures supposedly imposed their religion, laws, languages, and morality on other nations. Those who proclaimed no moral absolutes espoused only one inherent truth, that all imperialists were evil. Now groups of more traditional parents challenge those long-germinating ideas. They are rejecting these ideologies at the ballot box. Liberals recoil in shock and horror as they cry out that the conservatives politicize education. Where liberal doctrines reign supreme for decades, there is now confusion and contention. A typical situation transpired in Miami over the spring and summer of 2022. In April, the school board adopted a so-called health textbook by a 5-3 to three vote. That was the same month Florida's governor signed a new law that leftists erroneously dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill. The law forbids teaching about sexuality, quote, in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards, unquote. In Miami-Dade County, parents filed 278 objections to the new book, alleging that it violated the new law. On July 20th, the board reversed its decision by a 5-4 to four vote. However, the board chairwoman switched sides the following week, and the textbook was re-adopted. In many ways, that confusion was a prelude to the August 23rd election. Four members were up for re-election in the officially nonpartisan race. In one case, the incumbent chairwoman did not run for re-election to the board. Roberto Alonso vice president of a local real estate firm and member of the board of directors of Miami-Dade College, was elected to replace her on the school board. Mr. Alonzo's platform supported parents' rights in curriculum decisions and promised to, quote, protect female athletes and female sports, unquote. Then he added, boys can't compete in girls' athletics, unquote. In a far more contentious election, Monica Colucci challenged Dr. Marta Perez, who had been on the board since 1998. Local television station Channel 10 described Dr. Perez as, quote, a Republican and self-described moderate conservative, unquote. Mrs. Colucci, an elementary school teacher for 26 years, ran on a platform that stressed parents' rights and a return to basic education. She specifically opposed critical race theory and other extreme liberal agendas. Moms for Liberty, a parents' group, strongly supported Mrs. Colucci, who won the election by a 4% margin. There is another compelling aspect to this story. Miami-Dade County has been a reliably liberal bastion in a state whose other regions tend to be conservative. Governor DeSantis, who supported 30 other school board candidates statewide, received only 39% of Miami-Dade's votes when he ran for governor in 2018. In 2016, 
Hillary Clinton defeated Donald Trump in Miami-Dade County by a nearly two-to-one margin. This election amplified a trend that started in Loudoun County, Virginia, and spread to San Francisco. Largely liberal areas of the country are electing conservative school board members. Even in such communities, concerned parents can slow, and perhaps even stop, the nationwide spread of gender ideology and critical race theory in elementary and high schools. Perhaps, harmful ideas that took decades to develop can be turned back in a single election cycle. Pray that it be so. One set of reasons that so many people have focused on the schools have to do with COVID. The so-called pandemic has exposed many schools' problems. One reason that the school officials and public health people get along so well is that they are both members of the same group. A new word has been devised to describe them. Technocrats. As Mr. Benson illustrates, these so-called experts show up throughout modern governments. They all share one common characteristic. All of them believe that they know more about the things that are good for you and your children than you do. Mr. Benson explores their influence in his essay, Hold Public Health Technocrats Accountable for Their COVID Blunders. The people at Merriam-Webster define technocracy as management of society by technical experts. Technocracy is a word describing a mechanical rule over people. It applies the techniques of technology to the running of society, which is of a different nature. Thus, such experts are, by definition, more comfortable with ideas, machines, or processes than with people. They can provide some essential services, but they are best not entrusted with leadership over a whole society. Then came COVID. Suddenly, a small group of so-called public health experts closed offices, schools, churches, and other places where people gathered. Downtown streets looked like ghost towns. When interacting with other people was unavoidable, Everyone needed to wear masks and stand six feet apart. Living the good life became less about pleasant experiences and more about staying at home. The technocrats were in control and quickly mobilized their machinery to contain the virus and implement other reforms. Doctors, some of whom had not seen an actual patient in years, began telling everyone how to live with a disease that might never end. Actuaries compared typical mortality rates with those inflated by coronaviruses and mapped out the areas of most significant risk. Computer technicians created networks over which companies and schools could operate without actually bringing people together. However, even when the technocrats were at their apex, some naysayers refused to follow along. Society still needed plumbers, truckers, electricians, and others in hands-on trades who couldn't work from home. Grocery stores, hospitals, and other so-called essential services needed to operate to maintain life, even a life lived indoors. Some schools, mostly parochial, private, and charter schools, took basic precautions like regular hand-washing and not allowing large groups to assemble 
but still held classes. Some restaurants served food outdoors. Even governments pushed back against the technocrats. The news media noticed that Florida, Sweden, and other places didn't impose the same ridges restrictions on their people. The cameras stood by as networks waited for death tolls to explode. People questioned many of their measures when the experts' dire predictions went unfulfilled. However, the technocrats doubled down. They emphasized new threats. People without symptoms could spread the disease without knowing it. Those unaffected by COVID could still fall victim to unknown and unpredictable variants. Only those who got a booster every few months could be considered fully vaccinated. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal examined the effects of technocratic rule during the COVID scare, March 2020 to the present. It carries an arresting headline, Fauci and Walensky Double Down on Failure. The article cites three bodies of evidence indicating that failure. 1. U.S. states with most restrictive policies fared no better, on average, than states with less restrictive policies. 2. Florida and Sweden were accused of deadly folly for keeping schools and businesses open without masks, but their policies have been vindicated. 3. Medical treatments and screenings were delayed, and there were sharp increases in the rates of depression, anxiety, obesity, diabetes, fatal strokes and heart disease, and fatal abuse of alcohol and drugs. Any one of these disastrous results is enough to confirm the failure of the technocrats. They overlooked massive amounts of contrary evidence. They clung to practices that not only failed, but caused actual harm. In the world of private medicine, each situation would have given rise to a malpractice case that would ruin any doctor. In fairness, Separating the early stages of the crisis from the latter makes sense. The tendency was to err on the side of caution. However, as the disease developed, all but irrefutable facts dispensed with many of the first guidelines. Nevertheless, the technocrats clung to the advice they dispensed during the initial days of the crisis. When challenged, they mouthed the catchphrase, follow the science, while they refused to use new evidence to alter their approach to the disease. They insisted that their detractors were conspiracy theorists, misinformed COVID deniers, or some other pejorative terms. Such behavior is, unfortunately, very common among technocrats. Any acknowledgement of error undermines their credibility, since everything is based on the science. Those tendencies are not limited to public health officials. They also exist in environmental protection, education, and other contentious areas of public life. This bureaucratic short-sightedness is why society needs to hold the technocrats accountable for their COVID blunders. Machine-like measures should not be used on living institutions and peoples. 
Such matters are best left to social structures and natural leaderships that act from long experience and observation of the human condition, bolstered by morality and culture. Such organic societies might err on occasion. No human system is perfect. However, they are vastly more responsive to changing times and the real needs of the people than any clique of technocrats will ever be. The technocrats and their allies among America's teachers' unions try to create divisions by talking about an imaginary war on America's public schools. Their pseudo-educated rhetoric conceals their resentments. They cry out against the idea that parents have educational choices that the so-called experts do not control. They pretend not to understand that their so-called enemies are really parents trying to make sure that their children get good educations. Mr. Benson explores this topic and offers suggestions in his essay, Nine Strategies to Fix Americans' Broken Public Schools. I just finished reading a New York Times article titled, School is for Everyone. It promoted the argument that public education is essential to American life. The article's author, Anya Kamenetz, began with a historical statement relating to Horace Mann, often and justly called the father of American public education. Mrs. Kamenetz described Mr. Mann's goals. Quote, An essential part of man's vision was that public schools should be for everyone, and that children of different backgrounds should learn together. He pushed to draw wealthier students away from private schools, establish normal schools to train teachers, primarily women, and have the state take over charitable schools and increase taxes to pay for it all. As Mrs. Kamenet sees it, These were laudable goals, and the schools largely achieved them. Much good came out of public education. Within a generation, a nation that took in many impoverished and illiterate immigrants became one of the most literate nations in the world. Free education opened up many opportunities, making the country and its inhabitants more prosperous. However, this is not the whole story. Many writers, including myself, have described the disaster zone that much of modern American education has become. Egalitarian ideologies have entered the classrooms and destroyed the climate for learning. Mrs. Kamenetz acknowledges that problems exist. Unfortunately, she blames the wrong people. Indeed, she blames conservatives. She writes, All of this emboldened a movement on the right that has for more than half a century sought to dismantle public education and the idea that Americans from diverse backgrounds should learn alongside each other, This explanation inadvertently describes one reason that many Americans are abandoning public education. It is simple. Conservatives do not like being branded as a band of raving racists, and we resent the implication. Many conservatives possess diplomas and degrees from public schools and colleges. Conservatives do not like seeing public schools destroy many of the values they hold dear. If Mrs. Kamenetz is really interested in making public schools stronger— 
I would like to offer her nine strategies to make that happen. First, restore order. The primary reason schools exist is to educate, and teachers cannot do that amid chaos. All students must know that their actions have consequences, which administrators will swiftly impose on those who disrupt others when trying to learn. Second, listen to parents with respect. Parents come from all walks of life, but the vast majority love and want the best for their children and our country. Films of parents who speak at school board meetings only to have their concerns ignored are not good advertisements for public education. Third, stop implying that parents are oppressing their children. If teachers and administrators disagree with a parent's politics, religion, values, morals, and so on, they should not use the school as a platform to suggest that those views are oppressive. Telling or implying to students that their parents are stupid, uncaring, or repressive should remain out of bounds. Fourth, acknowledge that the schools are reflections of their communities, not so-called agents of change. The focus should be on expanding children's knowledge and opportunities, not on creating a generation of social activists. Fifth, don't teach theories as if they were facts. Any competent scientist will admit that very few established facts exist in any branch of natural science. Everything else is theory. Sixth, Keep controversial ideologies out of schools. The fifth point above is doubly true in psychology and sociology. Aside from basic biology, a child's sexual maturity is none of the school's business. The school plays a minimal role in emotional development. Gender theory and critical race theory are, as the names imply, theories. Not only are they not proven, but they are also unprovable. Seventh, re-embrace colorblindness. The more one talks about race, the more poisoned the discussion becomes. If left alone, children will choose playmates without regard to race. Creating racial hatred or inspiring uneasiness between groups of students helps no one. Eighth, medical care is a parental prerogative. Yes, there is a place for the school nurse who cleans and bandages wounds sustained on the playground. That place does not extend to the diagnosis of physical or mental diseases. If school officials think something might be wrong, they should tell the parent. If the family cannot afford medical care, the school could suggest a free or low-cost clinic that is not affiliated with the school. They should not initiate treatments without parental consent. Last, but still crucial, acknowledge Christianity's role in the culture's development. The prohibition against teaching religion does not extend to historical fact. 
If you teach about the scientific discoveries of Gregor Mendel or Roger Bacon, you can briefly mention that they did their scientific work in monasteries. You can cite Moses and Jesus Christ as among those who inspired our legal system. You can use the word father when discussing Junipero Serra's role in the settlement of California. Leaving that information out is a sign of intolerance and prejudice. Christians and conservatives are not obsessed with the idea of taking over American public education. If public schools want to set themselves up as the educators of all of America's children, then two words need to enter the education establishment's vocabulary. Respect and humility. Unfortunately, the above strategies will not be implemented. Protestations about teaching all of the children only camouflage a desire to make them all into an army of social justice warriors. We must not allow this to happen. This concludes. America's schools belong to parents and local communities, not smug bureaucrats or arrogant administrators. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please remember that we publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. There are two ways to make sure you don't miss future episodes. The first way is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.